the risen Lord, we've got to understand our dying Lord. And so the first thought that I want to throw into your brains this morning is that Jesus has loved us to death. He has loved us to death. And in every way you want to, uh, to just define that phrase, he's done it. Literally, he has loved us to the death of his life and to the degree that my grandmother loved me as she pinched my cheeks, to the nth degree, Jesus has loved us with that depth of love and relationship. Jesus has loved us to death. Death, in order to, to fully appreciate Christ's life in resurrection, we have to understand and come face to face with death itself. He died for us, <clears throat> and we face death, just as Christ faced death. <clears throat> death follows us from the time we are born. We are born so that at some point we will die. It is not a respecter of persons, this death. The young, the old, the poor, the rich, the famous, the obscure, all of us die. And all of us die with the same result. We're dead. We're dead. It's over. Death is cruel. And I won't go into the cruelty of death because I feel as if I say that word, every one of us can create or bring up images in our mind of the cruelty of death and the way that we've experienced that cruelty in our own life. And we're reminded of death all the time. The news flashes it before us, either individual deaths or mass deaths. We see it daily on our phone, on our computer, on the TV. We hear it in conversations. We are not immune to the story. We are not immune to the experience. And we're not immune to the reality that at some point in our lives, those closest to us are going to die and death will find us ultimately. We cannot escape death. And for many of us, it brings fear. It brings numbness. We either get immobilized by it, or we run from it. We try not to think about it, even as hard as it is to escape it. We try to put it out of our mind. We try to soften it. We try to elongate the thought of what it might be like when, way off then. For us, And yet when we encounter it in our lives, we are brought to the stark reality that this is a cruel, cruel thing called death. I feared it when I was growing up, and its, its tentacles wrapped their, their arms around my mind and my emotions as I thought about my own death. I thought about, as you've heard many times, if you've if you've been in this church long enough, how I obsessed about nuclear war uh, as a kid growing up in the days of the Cold War, I was mesmerized, gripped by the reality of um, destruction and the p potential of me being a part of that. But it wasn't really about the bigness of it that scared me, although that did scare me. It was about me being in the middle of that that scared me the most. I've, I, along with you, have also experienced the fear of losing those that we love the most. 
And many of us in the room have, have experienced that. I've walked with some of you through the experience of losing those that you love most dearly or have been loved by deeply. And we're not sure, or at least for many of us, the journey is an uncertainty of what that experience will be like. I don't mind, I've heard people say, I don't mind dying, it's just that I don't want to die this way. And you fill in the blank. But we cannot predict how we're going to die, nor can we decide except in an ungodly way by taking our own life. We can't decide for ourselves how we will die. But appointed for us all, the scripture is, says, a time for all of us to die. And then the judgment of God. So we know from scripture and we know from our experience that death is real. We know it as a physical reality. And for many of us in the room, we know it as a spiritual reality, although we don't fully understand the concept of it, really, because we haven't experienced it. None of us have experienced the reality of spiritual death to its fullest extent. Death, by its very nature, is described in Scripture as being separated from the love of God, removed from the very life and light presence of the one who is good, who is holy, who is true, who, is, who cares, who's concerned, who, who has our best interests in mind. That spiritual death, by our choosing, that separates us from the very thing that we long for, yet don't oftentimes in our world know how to receive. And yet we know that God's told us that there has been from the very beginning in the midst of this this entry of sin and death into world's existence, there has been equally longer a plan for our redemption. That while sin and death have reigned, God has had a plan to bring banished men and women, back to himself. And that plan was through Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin are de- is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned and we fall, all fall short of God's glorious standard. Sin is in all of us. Death is in all of us. James describes it as... Uh, When we are tempted, we do not say God is tempting us. God's never tempted us to do wrong, and He never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away, and these desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. The natural flow or consequence of our turning away from God, our turning to our own desires our own lusts, our own invention is sin. And when sin has its fullness of expression, James says, it brings death to our life. It brings death possibly to relationships. It brings death possibly to ambitions. It brings death to our peace and well-being. It brings death to all facets of our life. And the ultimate end of sin in our world is death physically and separation spiritually from God. It's your sins, Isaiah said in the Old Testament, that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, He has turned away and will not listen anymore. But God has made a plan, and this plan is in Jesus. And Jesus 
has loved us to death and to life. Let's read, before we get to Easter, let's read and reminisce through His Word the story of Christ's death as we look at it in Mark 15. We have gotten up to this point in the story in verse 25 with Him spending time with His disciples, washing their feet, sharing with them stories and truths about His death and His resurrection. His journey in the garden last week, we talked about Him looking into the cup of judgment and realizing that He was going to take on this judgment for us all. We have Him tried and beaten and nailed to a cross. Verse 25, and it was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. <laughs> well, then save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. <laughs> he saved others. They scoff, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. And even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. We actually know in another gospel account that those men, one of them did ridicule him, but one of them turned to him and said, can you save me? And what did Jesus do as he had already been beaten, suffering, dying? Even in that place where he could have completely caved or been attentive to his own needs, he looks at this man and he speaks life into the criminal next to him. Today you will be with me in paradise. Even in his last breath, Jesus is extending life to those who would believe. Verse 33, at noon darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. From noon until three o'clock it was dark. Then at three o'clock Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemethak sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? If you remember, if you were here last week, we talked about this place where Jesus in the garden, when he was praying and he looked and he, God allowed him to see for the first time what this, this dying on the cross was going to be about. It was going to be about the judgment of God that is supposed to come on us as sinners coming upon Jesus instead and Him being for those three days or that time which seemed like eternity because He had never been separated from the fellowship and the love of God that He experienced with the Father and the Holy Spirit, that He was going to experience abandonment and judgment in our place. And remember, He looked in the cup and He said, God, take this cup from me. Isn't there a better way? Because He saw what it was going to be like. And yet at that point in the garden, you remember what he said? He said, but not my will, but your will be done. If it is the best thing, if this plan is the best plan, then I'm all in. Because I love you. I trust you, Father. 
And I love those that you've called me to lay down my life for. And you can now put your name in that blank, those he was willing to die for. And even at the place of the cross, he felt it. Why are you abandoning me? He felt in his humanity the separation of the love of God, and he felt the judgment that we deserved. And he cried out to God. And right before that cry, there was darkness. I stopped and I paused and I said, three hours of darkness. It's an impossible supernatural event. No solar eclipse is going to last that long. And it wasn't the season for that to happen anyway at the full moon of Passover. It was a supernatural time. Three hours where the land was dark. And we know through Scripture that that was a sign of God's judgment. God darkened the world while His Son was on the cross to bring the full extent of His wrath upon this moment in time. No Son, no life. The sun and sky. No son, Jesus, no life. There's a story about the explorer Shackleton who was um, the one with a crew of people that, w- that sailed to the Antarctica and his desire was to get to, the, to the, the, the edge of Antarctica and walk across the South Pole and then get in on the other side and continue to, to sail. But when his ship got to that part in the ocean, it got caught within the uh, ice, the the um, the icebergs, and it got stuck, and it was crushed. And every one of the crew had to get off of the boat, and for months they were in a in a a plight of survival for their lives. One of the miraculous parts of the story has nothing to do with my sermon is that he didn't lose one of his crew members in this this period of time. But in their journey, they fought off starvation, they fought off freezing temperatures. They had all kinds of ways in which they had to survive, but it is recorded that the, one of the hardest things or the hardest thing they experienced was darkness. That for two months at the South Pole, from mid-May to the end of July, it goes completely dark. And it's spoken of different, different journeys at the South Pole that those who enter that kind of darkness oftentimes go crazy. Because they are disoriented and the, the, the withdrawal of all light or most objects of light um, create a stirring of restlessness and hopelessness that causes many to go crazy. The absence of light in their lives. What does it look like for us to experience the absence of spiritual light in our lives? For many of us, we don't even realize that we're living in darkness. But that very same suffocating absence of hope brings a disorienting lostness to our lives. Jesus, the Son of God, came to bring light. John clearly articulates that theme throughout his book about Jesus, his gospel. 
so that we might know his light in his life. Jesus fell into darkness, allowed himself to be succumbed to darkness and judgment for us so that we would not have to. So that we would not have to experience it. He made a way for us to enter into God's presence. Keep on reading with me from Mark 35. And some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes down to, t- comes to take him down. They continued to mock. They continued to wonder. And then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two, and this is really important, from top to bottom. The curtain. The curtain that separated uh, the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The curtain of which protected or blocked people from entering into the Shekinah glory of God, the very presence of God. The curtain that was so thick that it was like a wall. Ripped at the moment of Christ's death. It, it says in other passages of Scripture that there were earthquakes, that the, the, earth, the earth trembled, people came out of their graves alive, there was resurrections that happened. That's a crazy story in and of itself. And in the temple, the curtain from top to bottom was ripped. Why? Because God wanted to know, wanted everybody else to know this was Him. This wasn't a natural, um, oh wow, there was a fray on the bottom and somehow somebody walked through the curtain and was, was careless and the whole thing ripped. This was a sign from God of something that happened that was important for us to take notice of. The curtain from top to bottom was ripped. Why? Because God was saying, Jesus has died once and for all. The Holy of Holies, where one time a year the holiest man or the holy man walks in into the Holy of Holies and he offers a sacrificial offering for the sins of the people. God is saying, once and for all, the Lamb of God, Jesus, has been sacrificed once and for all for the sins of the world. And no longer is the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, off limits for my people, but it has been torn in half. And you can come in. Come into the presence of God. Come into my presence. Because Jesus has done it. Jesus has done it. God wanted us to know that He had made a way where there was no other way, not because of our holiness or our sacrifices or our suffering or our do-goods. He is not pleased. He doesn't care about that. What He cares about is what Jesus, His Son, could do because He was the only one worthy to do it because He was perfect in every way, willing in every way to drink the cup of judgment, to be separated from God, to endure His wrath for you and me. He died. And the presence of God was made available for you and me. When the Roman officer, verse 30, whatever, because my glasses, I can't read that number. 38, thank you. When the Roman officer who stood facing Him saw how He had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. So what we have here are the two two first believers 
one believer before he died, a criminal on the cross, and in the next person after he died, a Roman killer looking up at him and saying, this guy is the real deal. Christ did this for all who'd receive because he wants you, us, me to live. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life abundantly. He does not want us to fear death. His heart is merciful and forgiveness for us. Colossians 2.14 says he canceled the record that contains the charges against us. He took it and destroyed it by nailing it to a cross. Everything that condemns us, Paul is saying in this letter, he's saying that Jesus took that list of everything that would separate us from the presence of God. And you think about your own life. And be honest, will you? Don't be thinking about somebody else's life, but think about all your junk. I'm saying your junk because I can tell you about my junk. You hear about my junk all the time. All of our junk and all of our rebellion and all of those private thoughts and ambitions and secret things that we think about and that we are ashamed of and all of that stuff that's way back there or that's really close to us right here. He took that account, your millions, my millions, and he placed them all upon himself on the cross and said, once and for all, get behind me, Satan. These are my children. And I am dying for their sin and accusing them no more. Because I've taken it. And it's done. And he did that for you. Do you believe it? Do you believe that everything that is wrong about you, and I'm saying it to myself, everything is wrong about me. Jesus died on the cross for it and paid it in full. One theologian says that when he ripped the, ripped the veil or ripped the curtain, God was saying, paid in full. It's done. Once and forever. Not all your past junk, but all your future junk as well. All the stuff right now, if I just caught you in an act of sin, done. It's all taken care of. Praise the Lord. Jesus Loved you to death, and he loves you to life. Can we race into the resurrection now? Now that we know that, as Max Lucado says, between his hands and the wood, there was a list, a long list, a list of our mistakes, our lusts, our lies, and greedy moments in prodigal years, a list of our sins, and he died for us. And then he rose from the grave. Mark 16, look at this. Saturday evening, when Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. And very early on Sunday morning, just as the sunrise, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. And on the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that stone, saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. Can I just pause here for a second? These are followers of Jesus. These are the same, if you look at the end of Mark, which I didn't read, are the ones that were watching Jesus die. These are women, um, also represented by the men in their lives, but that had followed Jesus and had seen his miracles and had heard him teach in Mark over and over again that on the third day I will rise. Even though they had heard it, they knew it was the third day after his death, he proclaimed it. What were they doing? 
They were bringing burial spices because they couldn't really believe that it could happen. I just want to encourage you, even the people that were closest to Jesus that heard him tell it all the time, it was hard for them to imagine that Jesus could rise from the dead. They faithfully loved Jesus. These women loved Jesus as much as anybody in the whole world loved him. They were going to anoint him and pray over him and weep over his body. But they had a hard time believing that what he had said was going to come true. And when they got there, they entered the tomb and they saw a young man clothed in white robes sitting on the right side. The woman, women were shocked, but the angel said, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, but he isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look, this is where he laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, the one who turned his back on Jesus. Let him know first. Jesus is alive and he's coming after him. No, I'm just kidding you. <laughs> we know the rest of that story, right? We know that the first, one of the, one of the key passages of John is when Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, don't live by your past, live by your future. You are my friend, you are my shepherd, and I want you to lead the church. So for, that, for those of us who don't understand why we're laughing, Peter is a, just a real human being like you and me. He makes mistakes, but Jesus makes his mistakes into glorious good things because of his redemption and grace. And he does that in our life. Anyway, tell Peter that he's out. Then Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. <laughs> and the women were like, oh, shoot. We in that list, too. We're all messed up. Thank you for God's grace that when we don't get it right, listen to me. Thank you for God's grace that when we don't get it right like Peter, when we don't get it right like Mary and Salome, Jesus is still alive, and he's still visiting, and he doesn't come in with shame or condemnation, but he says, come on, touch me. You'll see it. We're not going to read it, but he, he goes on and he says, come on, he appears to me, he says, touch me, I'm real, I'm alive, and guess what? I love you. You're mine. Let's do this thing. Let's win this thing. For God, Jesus rose from the grave. You know what? There were lots of messianic, messianic movements before Jesus and after Jesus. There were lots of revolutions that happened, and many times those messianic leaders were killed. Some of them were crucified, just like Jesus. This could have been one of, this, one of many stories during that period of time that ended, as all of those other revolutions ended, by the leader being killed and his followers eventually being scattered and nobody remembers them anymore. But why is it that this one in the midst of all of these survived? It's because of the fact that the, that the leader rose from the grave and that the followers and many others saw him, touched him, talked to him, and experienced the resurrected life of our Savior. Scholars say that Mark goes into detail of mentioning in this, in this 14 and 15 passage, 15, 14, 15, 16, the names of the observers because he is making a factual account, a reporting, reporting account of who was there that saw it. And, and it's assumed that Mary and Mary and Salome were still alive when Mark's gospel was written. And he was basically saying, hey, if you want some witnesses, go talk to these ladies. They live in Bethlehem, uh, 27, you know, Savior Street. You can see them anytime you want to. They saw him. 
And not only did these women and these men see him, but there was, a, there was an account of 500 people that saw him at one time. There's a whole host of people that recognize Jesus. It would, be, it would be far-fetched to think that one or two would carry on the ruse for a few days or a few months and possibly even be killed for the story. But for, for 500 to close to 1,000 people probably to have seen Jesus' resurrected body and interacted with him, it changed their life. It changed their life so much that they started a church under persecution, were scattered throughout the region, and many of these leaders that we love and adore were killed and murdered for their faith. So when we stand back 2,000 plus years from the resurrection and we go, you know what, is this some kind of crazy religious story? Maybe you can believe that, but I choose to believe the facts. No, well, no, 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 this is all faith, brother. This, no, this is, this is no facts and religion. It's all about some spiritual... No, this, I believe, is a fact. It would be impossible for me to believe that that many people would go to their grave telling a lie and telling a story about how they had saw somebody they never saw to receive no earthly glory for their roots and be tortured for their faith. I believe it's true. And I believe I've encountered the living God. And he loves you and me. Amen. Stand up with me. Can I have the worship team come up here and finish us out? Thank you for being patient in enduring my excitement. <laughs> but goodness gracious, if we are Christians and we can't get excited about resurrection and Easter, we're in trouble. This is glorious. Come on. You know, Thomas, one of his disciples, couldn't even believe the stories that the, the, that the women from the grave said. He couldn't believe the stories that some of the disciples said until what? Until he touched Jesus for himself. And what did Jesus do? Shame on you. No, he, he walked through a wall and came into a meeting miraculously and walked right up to Thomas and said, Thomas, I love you. I created you to be a skeptic. And I have to believe here in Boston that we have a few skeptics in the room because I live among us. He said, you know what, Thomas? It's okay, I created you to be a skeptic. It's going to serve you well in life. But right now, I want to put your doubts at ease. Would you touch me? Would you put your fingers here in the wounds of my hands? Touch me, Jesus. Thomas. I want you to know. You know, some people, it's going to be, it's, it went on to say, you know, it's going to be incredible that the people that come after you are not going to be able to touch me. And they're going to believe by faith that what they've read and what they've, what they've, they've heard about is true. But Thomas, I'm going to let you touch me so that you would know. You know what? I really believe that Jesus does whatever we need him to do for him to reveal himself to us. For some of us, it's a study in His Word. For some of us, it's an encounter in worship. For some of us, as it's happening throughout the world, it's an appearance of Jesus Himself. But He's going to do whatever it takes, not because He has to. Listen to me. I want you to know that He does whatever it takes because He loves you. But we've got to be open to that. There are plenty of people... How many times have you been in a situation where somebody tells a story of the event and you go, that didn't happen? 
Why can I say something didn't happen and another person says it happens and we're in the same place? Because sometimes we see and we receive with different eyes. It's up to us when God makes his attempt to get at our lives and to communicate to us. It's up to us. The only thing we have to do is to be open. And so that's my prayer. Lord Jesus, this morning, as we've heard your word, we've sung songs about you. We've seen children dance and glorify you, Lord. I just pray that every person in this room would be open to you communicating to them. However you want to do it and however we need you to do it i believe you love us that much and so lord i'm asking that each one of us especially for us and those of us in the room who are on a journey of wondering whether or not we believe i ask god that you would give us courage those of us in the room that are in that place you give us courage to pray a dangerous prayer god would you reveal yourself to me way that I can understand so I'm just going to pause I'm going to let you pray that prayer the way you would pray Answer it according to your ways and your purposes in a way that each one of us who needs the answer will know that is God. You did that for Thomas. You did that for Peter. You did that for Mary and Mary. You did that for the 500. You did that for all of us in this room who have believed. Would you do it for those who have yet to believe but that you're knocking on the door of their heart? Help, Lord, those who are seeking. Open up the door of their heart to let you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you, along with this band and me, would you sing with us this final song that Christ is risen and let us sing it from the depths of our heart because we know that Jesus is alive. He's alive. Shame.